would just be ready to receive um, the truth of your word, God. Amen. Amazing. Morning, everyone. Oh, I can remove this now. Put that down there. Uh, well, good morning. Um, for of you who don't know, um, I'm Owen, and I'm the youth worker here. Um, and so I'm going to be finishing off our series on Nehemiah, so looking at Nehemiah 6 and 7, um, and just really excited to unpack what God has got for us through this passage. But first, I just want to tell you a, a quick story about a time when I was younger. Um, I was probably about eight, and me and my parents were walking through uh, a churchyard in the village I grew up, and I spotted... Um, something over in the grass, and I ran over, and it was 20 quid. And I don't know if you've ever been, when, when you were eight, 20 quid was a lot of money, um, still is a lot of money. And um, I was just, I, I had found it, and it was a bit like Gollum, I just sort of held it close, and it was mine. And um, I remember my parents going, oh, that's really good, because we can go and we can give that to the vicar, and he can put it in the offering box, or he can find whose 20 quid it was, and I was like, no, it's mine. I found it. And um, I remember they walked me to the vicar's house, and I handed it in. And um, I don't know if you can tell, but something in me still hurts. There was still an annoyance and an irritation. Um, I remember as a child being irritated, and as an adult, I'm still irritated, and that probably says more about me than it should. Um, but they knew that it was a point of character that actually um, giving was a point of character, that what we do when we are given something is actually we give it to God and we give it um, back to the church. And it was a real thing that they sort of tried to install in me. And the reason I bring this up is because today, if we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 6, and we're going to be looking at the character of Nehemiah through this chapter and what we can learn from him. So let's just do a quick recap of the story so far. The book of Nehemiah opens in the Persian capital of Susa uh, in about the 5th century uh, BC. And Nehemiah hears from another fellow Jew that the walls of Jerusalem are destroyed and burnt, and he weeps. And we then hear how Artaxerxes the king sends him back uh, to Jerusalem, leading this third of three exile returns that we see, starting with Zerubbabel under Cyrus the Great. And Nehemiah gets the Jewish people, they're rebuilding the walls and it's going well. And they start facing opposition. We heard from Tom Simmons and Rob about how they face that outward opposition from uh, our good old friends Sambalat, Tobiah and Geshem, who I'm sure we've got used to hearing about. And then last week, Tom Baird spoke about the opposition that they faced internally and how Nehemiah confronted the sins of the wealthy Israelites. And hopefully, I'm sure you've uh, become aware, if you didn't know already over these last few weeks, that Nehemiah and Ezra uh, are great books. They speak of this remnant of God, of the people of God, rebuilding. For Ezra, it's desiring that spiritual renewal. But for Nehemiah, it's this physical rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And there's so much that we can translate into our lives as a church in building culture. For example, like, we know that there's going to be opposition from the world, from the enemy. We've come to terms with that often. But there's often also opposition from within, as we heard about last week. And how do we push against opposition? Well, time and time again we've seen it's through taking God seriously, first and foremost, and then taking a stand, whether spiritually or physically. And this morning, I want to finish this series by looking at the character of Nehemiah, finishing of the wall, and then conclude the series, all in about 25 minutes, so we'll see how that goes. But first, let's read Nehemiah 6, verses 1 
to 14. Now when Sambala and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sambala and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hekephrim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalat, for a fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. That's the, the king of Persia. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such thing as you have said has been done, for you are inventing them out of your mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I should go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. For this, um, remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadia and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So a few weeks ago, uh, Rob spoke about Nehemiah being a bit like a story in a film where the enemies just won't stay down, um, and then you get to the post-credit scene, and they're there ready for the sequel. And after a week of hearing about Nehemiah opposing issues within the people of God, these three rear their ugly heads again. They've tried to ridicule and scoff the people of God. They've threatened physical violence. But each time, Nehemiah has stood strong in God, and their plans have failed. So this time, they turn to conspiracy and deception. And I just want to go through their four actions and speak about Nehemiah's response and what we can learn from the character of Nehemiah. First, we see these private letters that form a deception to draw Nehemiah away from safety. Now, the Bible mentions Hekephrim, uh, which we don't know that much about. But we do know that Ono was a town in just north of Jerusalem and uh, would have perhaps served as a neutral ground between Samaria and the remnant living in Jerusalem. So for the government of Samaria, that is Sambala, and the leader of the work in Jerusalem, who was an envoy of Persia, to meet on neutral ground probably wasn't the strangest thing, if you read it out of context. But we know the backstory. We know what they've been trying to do to the people of God. And Nehemiah knows this. So he says, I'm doing a great work. Why should the work stop? He knows the importance of the work that he's doing, but he also knows exactly what they're wanting to do. So why stop working to go for something that is best a waste of time and is worse, a death sentence? 
And I really feel that uh, Nehemiah's response shows that true disciples are focused on God's work. Their eyes are like horses which have those blinkers on. They are focused on what God has for them. And that limits the deceptions that come their way. If you're focused on what God has for you, then actually the other things that come in on the side, they're not visible because you're, you're looking at what God has for you. And Nehemiah is focused on his work. The second thing they do is they increase that pressure by sending four letters. And that's another increase of pressure for Nehemiah internally because, as I said, Sambala is a, is a powerful figure. But Nehemiah responds. He keeps going through the protocol of diplomacy. He doesn't give into that pressure. He remains above reproach. True disciples don't buckle under peer pressure, even from external powers. And then third, we get this, this slander of reputation that Sam Ballot tries to pull. And this is a big test for Nehemiah, because I don't know about you, but I can be doing pretty well in arguments or debates, but sometimes when someone just pokes that bit of pride in me, in my ego, that's when it hurts. And Sam Ballot seems to be an expert at character assassination, the spin doctor of Samaria, if you will. And trying to create, he's trying to create opposite, external opposition for Nehemiah from Persia, whilst also trying to play nice, saying that he can mediate between the two on a situation that he started. He's trying to play on the fear of this Davidic king, feared back with Zerubbabel, who actually was in the line of David that will come and build Israel. He tries to make Nehemiah fearful through thinly veiled threats. I love how Nehemiah responds. He doesn't ignore it, but neither does he explode with rage and fear and emotion. It's not because his pride is harmed that he responds. It's because he sees the need to cut down these lies and rumors that will harm the people of God. True disciples don't care about their reputation, but they do care about the reputation of God and his people. And then finally we get this, this false prophecy from Shemaiah, which in some ways hurts the most because it's that internal conspiracy. And Nehemiah in this time needs to remember what God says about how he should act and lead from this wolf in sheep's clothing, that he needs to weigh the prophecy that's given to him. This call to, from Shemaiah to hide and be fearful might have reminded Nehemiah of the sin of the generation of Israelites who refused to go into the land that we read of in Deuteronomy 1, who were governed by fear in their hearts and so missed out on all that God had for them. Nehemiah will not be led to cowardice by this false prophecy and by fear of the men who are trying to entrap him. True disciples are grounded in the fear of God not the fear of man. And they're grounded in biblical truth. So those are the four things that they try and do to entrap Nehemiah. Sorry, I was just... Double-sided paper. Awfully confusing, isn't it? One of the main reasons I think we can learn so much from Nehemiah is that Nehemiah is an ordinary guy. He's not a priest like Ezra. He's not a prophet like Malachi. He served the king in a secular position, and was brought to, but he was brought to grief and action at the state of the city of God, where God's people dwell 
and was set apart. That brought him to this point of weeping and grief and action. He leads by example, giving up a respected position to be opposed by strong enemies, conspired against whilst kingdom building. And who does that remind us of? Well, it should be Jesus. Nehemiah typifies Christ. He points us towards this better kingdom maker, one who Philippians 2 tells us, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Over this time in the four weeks, what has God been speaking to you about from the life and character of Nehemiah? Have you been leading by example, laying down the comfortable things in your life and picking up God's mission for you, even if it costs and you face opposition? Have you been speaking against false prophecy and teaching? Or have you become a bit lax in what you're weighing against scripture? Do you care about the reputation of God and his people in this town? And so do all you can to uphold that. Because that's what it means to be an imitator of Nehemiah. And more importantly, an imitator of Christ. And this then leads us to the end of our series with the completion of the wall. And the final seven chapters of Nehemiah, which we aren't going to be covering week by week, but I'm just going to want to touch on them briefly. So let's read the rest of, let's read chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, and then a little bit of chapter 7. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And let's go to verse 7, chapter 7. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own houses. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses were rebuilt. There's this wait now, this wait for the people of God to return. There are no houses, there are no people, there are guards, but there are no houses and no people. We're in this place of expectation for the, dwelling, for the people of God to return to the dwelling place of God. And our series ends with... Nehemiah having completed the task that he originally set out to do. Nehemiah starts with this line in uh, chapter 1, verse 3. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So let's compare and contrast to the passage we've just read. Well, in the first chapter, the people are in trouble. But in Nehemiah 7, they are protected publicly by the Lord Almighty. In Nehemiah 1, the people are in shame. 
But in Nehemiah 7, it's the enemies of God who are fearful and in their esteem has fallen. And in Nehemiah 1, the gates and the walls are broken and destroyed by fire. But in Nehemiah 7, they're rebuilt. It is clear when we read chapter 7 that this restoration, this physical restoration has taken place in Jerusalem. And this continues. We read in chapter 8, Ezra comes and reads the law of Moses. He reads the Torah to the people. And the people shout, Amen, Amen. They agree, basically. And then the day is marked as holy and celebration is commanded. And then in chapter 9, the people are confessing their sins. In chapter 10, they're signing this covenant. And there's a dedication of the wall in chapter 12. And then Nehemiah leaves and goes back to Susa because his job is done. But in chapter 13, we see it all come to this disappointing conclusion. Nehemiah returns from Susa and things are a mess. The priests aren't being honored. And so many have left. The sacrifices aren't taking place. Tobiah is living in the house of God in the temple. They aren't keeping the Sabbath. The nobles are oppressing the poor. Intermarrying has started again. All the sins of this previous generation are repeating now the sins of the fathers. The commitment that they made in Nehemiah 10 to 12 is not visible in their daily lives. The leaders are passionate, but the people's hearts are found wanting. Nehemiah has done great work, but even he is not able to change the hearts of the people. It's like my 20-pound note story. Doing the right thing, demonstrating good character, doesn't always end up with us benefiting. And that is the reality that Nehemiah feeds, feels at this point. So what can we read from this to finish? The people of God don't just need societal and political renewal. They need heart renewal. They need open heart surgery. They need a greater Nehemiah. They need Jesus. Currently, in the time of Nehemiah, the laws are written down. But there is a time coming in the people of God where, as Jeremiah prophesies, the law is going to be written on their hearts. And that is what Nehemiah points towards. Often we read parts of the Bible and we're, we're disappointed because they don't give us that sense of completion that maybe we want. But, at the, but that's the point. They're signposts. The reason why the temple isn't the same is because we're about to meet the living temple, the living tabernacle, Jesus. The reason why the city of God isn't the same is because we're being signposted to a time where God dwells within his people. And this is the truth that we get to live in today. We get to know the greater Nehemiah, Jesus. And we get to stand in the good of all he's done. And if you want to know more about that amazing figure, Jesus, we would love to speak to you more about it. Come to Alpha, find out who Jesus is. And the amazing thing as well is that the next series that we're going to be doing, which leads off from where I am, is all about the person of Jesus. We're going to be looking at who Jesus is and why we need him. So stick around if you're new to Christchurch, because over the next few months, we're going to be digging deep into who Jesus is, this greater Nehemiah that I've been speaking about. 
I'm just going to pray to close. Yeah, Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can see your work through your word. Lord, thank you that you are with your people. You meet with your people. Your heart is to see your people changed and empowered. Lord, thank you that your people are meant to be set apart and meant to be this shining light of holiness, not because they are good, but because you are good. And Lord, I pray that that would be our heart this morning. Lord, that we would be set apart for your holiness. Lord, we would be set apart for all that you've got for us. Lord, empower us. Holy Spirit, come right now and fill us afresh because we can only do it with your help. Amen.